Family from the Heart, podcast episode number 73. And Mackenzie spends a weekend in the shack. That represents 11 years of my life. Hi, this is Paul Young, author of The Shack, and you're listening to Cliff and Stephanie and Family from the Heart. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to another episode of Family from the Heart. My name is Cliff Ravenscraft. I'm Stephanie Ravenscraft. We're here today with a very special episode of Family from the Heart, one that many of you have been waiting for for a very long time. Took us a while to get the right permissions and authorization to go with today, but uh, we have some very special content that Stephanie's going to tell you about right now. Okay, okay, so... We um, got the great privilege to have Paul Young speak at our church Yes, a few weeks ago. Thank you, Watermark Community Church, whom Absolutely. we love so much being a part of. Absolutely. So we were very excited. He, he spoke at, at two different sessions. times. Sessions, yes. And one of them was recorded. One of them was recorded by a certain somebody. By our somebody. very own certain somebody. <laughs> a certain somebody. And one me. Yes. So um, it, anyway, like Cliff said, it took a while to get the right permission to, to, to play the the audio. But it for was... For you guys. Right, for you guys. But it was an amazing night. It was an amazing night. Now, we did not get to hear the very first session that Paul spoke. No. And from what we have heard... Easy for me to say. They're very different. They're very different. It was it was completely different talk almost altogether. Right. And I'm not sure what he said in the first session, but all I know is that he actually mentioned podcasting and something about podcasting in the first session. And since it wasn't recorded, I don't know what that was. Right. But anyway, we had the opportunity to meet him, obviously, we as did. you could hear you had heard the intro from Paul Young. <laughs> the funny thing is, is that um, we knew that he was going to be autographing books. And Cliff and I did not own the the hardback or the paperback or any kind of back that you could hand, hold in your hand that can be signed. We have it on the Kindle for iPhone on our iPhone. So it's like, why couldn't we just have him sign our iPhone, right? I don't really think that it works that way. No, it doesn't. And so I made Cliff buy a book. Yes, you did. And I was happy so, to do so. So that it could be signed. And we stood in line. Our kids were getting very anxious to leave. It was getting very late, but we stood in line to be the last one. <laughs> to be the last in line so that people didn't have to wait while we had uh, explained right, to him who we were who, and what we're doing right. and stuff like that. And as soon as it, we told him about Family from the Heart and explained that Mardell.com is one of our sponsors and right. that we've Right been, away, he knew who Mardell, you know, who Mardell was. Exactly. Mardell. And uh, he was just very excited and on board with what we're doing here. And this is very awesome. And it is a great privilege to be able to bring to you this very special episode. Now, I, I don't have to tell you this probably since you're already listening to this, but we're not able to release this episode for download. Right. So you're actually listening to this, obviously, from our website, unless you found some other means of getting it, which you shouldn't. Uh, but please send other people to this website to come in and check out this audio recording. It is a great honor and privilege to be able to share it with you in any shape, fashion, one way or another. Right. And I did get authorization to stream it as much as I want from our website. Right. So thank you for that, Paul Young. Absolutely. It's a great honor and a blessing. It really was. I think my favorite parts of the night were, number one, he's a real guy. You know? Yes. It's, it's just, it's so funny. And he says several times in the recording... <laughs> What he did, 
before he wrote The Shack. I, I can't recall what it was, but he's like, I just do this. You know, this is all I am. Yeah. Very, very real. And secondly, he's funny. He is funny. He is funny. I laughed. I cried. I thoroughly enjoyed listening to him speak and yes. share his story and the inspiration behind The Shack. Right. Now, I had heard uh, many times in the past because I had researched Paul Young mm-hmm. after reading The Shack myself, which is an excellent book. And by the way, it is available from our sponsor, Mardell.com. If you go to M-A-R-D-E-L.com, please support them and buy this book from Mardell.com if you have the opportunity to do so. Absolutely. Use promo code GSPN. That stands for Generally Speaking Production Network. Promo code GSPN in the shopping cart. You'll get 10% off your entire order. Uh, just keep that in mind when you go to Mardell.com. And if you're on the website, there's a link to it here on the site mm-hmm. that you can just click on. And it'll take you right to that book. And you'll be able to check out right away. Right. And uh, we thank Mardell.com for being an awesome sponsor of Always. this wonderful podcast that has allowed us to share our hearts, our minds, our lives, and what goes on in our family with you guys. And I am so excited about this. And the recording you're about to hear is one hour and 11 minutes long after we're done talking here. Right. And I, lo- I, I, I think one thing that I, that I love about him letting us share this recording is that he shares a story in here and he says, I've never shared this before. Yes. I've never shared this before. I've never shared this story before. And, and it's a great story. And it's a great story. So my friends, without further ado, we're just going to we're not even going to come in at the end no. of this thing. You're just going to hear this entire thing. We're going to let it play on out. Please do us a favor, share this website with everybody you know. Please. If they are if they have read The Shack, if they have not read The Shack and are wondering what's going on, my favorite quote, and I'm going to play it one more time is this right here. And Mackenzie spends a weekend in The Shack. That represents 11 years of my life. 11 years of my life. And you know what? When I was reading The Shack and I read the Mackenzie, the main character's experience there, I'd had many of those conversations with God right. over the course of the last 13, 14, 15 years of my life. Right. And, and that's why it resonates so much with me. What a powerful and awesome book this is. Now, if you're listening to this and you're wondering, what about all the controversy that's going on? I did another episode of a podcast that I produced called About the Church. Yes. There's going to be a link to that episode on this website as well, where I did my full review of the main controversies behind this. You're going to hear him share a story. I know you said without further ado. Yeah, but, um, but that's all right. You're going to hear him share a story in a little bit about how his mom came to read the book. And I loved that story. Oh, yeah. Because how many times we want to please our parents and we want to, to gain their approval and it actually came through the recommendation of someone that she respected for her to read the book and get past. And what, what a powerful so many people, story that child it, that she. I know. Yes. It, it, so it's awesome. You're going to love it. And now, without further ado, that's William right. Paul Young. So you know, you write a story for your kids, and and uh, well, there's nobody who's ordinary. Um, and there's nobody normal except those you don't know. And uh, um, we all grow up, you know, in different ways. And the shack, it's people say, is this a true story? And I say, yeah, it's just not real. <laughs> you know? 
It's like a parable. Parables are true stories that aren't real. Right? And uh, um, there were a lot of people that were really angry with me because they thought it was like factual history. And even though it said fiction on it and it was sold as fiction and it was in the fiction section in the store. Listen, there is a reality to it, a sense of reality. I've had two forensic detectives contact me looking for the case file. True. Went out to coffee with one of them. And, uh, you know, as you begin, when you're a child, life is full of wonder if, you know, parts of it, parts of it can be very hard. Um, the shack becomes a metaphor. The, the shack is the house of the human soul, the house on the inside, the house where we store all of our addictions. We, we keep our memories of all the ways we were told we would never amount to anything. It's the place where we, we hide all our secrets. And we don't let anybody in there because we're terrified if they knew the secrets, we would lose what affection and approval that we managed to scrabble together. But here's the trap about secrets. We don't tell them because we're afraid we will lose the affection, but we're stopped from receiving love because we don't believe it. When somebody gives us affection and approval, we don't believe it because they don't know the secrets. You see? So you're caught. Secrets keep us sick, and we are as sick as the secrets we keep. Did you know that people who tell the truth don't have to remember anything? I grew up having to remember everything. <laughs> I was a religious kid. <laughs> the um, William P. Young, the William part is uh, my family's first names. William Paul, my dad's William Henry, Chad's my firstborn, William Chad. My first grandson is William Gavin. And Gavin has just turned two last week. I have three grandbabies and one on the way. My kids are uh, 28, 26, 24, 21, 18, and 16. Six kids. And uh, so uh, it was, I told the folks earlier that it was fun when the book first came out that people would call me up and go, have you read this book by this William Young? Because see, nobody knows me as William. <laughs> Very fun. It's Paul, Paul, you know, so... So, and it was great. The interviewers, it, it threw them off all the time. Should we introduce you as William or Bill? Paul. <laughs> Are you the right guy? <laughs> yeah. So, uh, it's really had a profound impact. I want to tell you some stories. And um, these stories are woven, uh, some of them are very funny, some of them, and, and part of it is, I really believe that God is a relational being, that you, you can't take relationship out of God and still have God. There is a reason that there are three who are one, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And there, is out, there are elements of that that go so far beyond our understanding, which is a good thing, because if you can totally comprehend God, then you've created Him. And so, there is this relational element. And, uh, and I think that uh, religion has largely uh, created almost a smokescreen between us and the character and nature of God. And so... Uh, one of the questions that was asked earlier, uh, just in, in the comments to introduce me, was the question, where are you? And that becomes an important question later tonight. I just want you to remember that that's... We didn't, we didn't talk about what, how he would introduce me. I said, just make something up, you know? And um, so that's interesting because that's kind of where we're headed for is that question, where are you? I, do you think God has a sense of humor? Oh, yeah. Totally. Because, see... 
where do we think it came from? You know, like God is a relational being. I think they've been playing jokes on each other for like infinite time. You know, and uh, but they have a great sense of humor. I saw this cartoon where God is up in the clouds and he says, "There, we're done creating." Oops, we missed a few pieces. And then you're like, where the where the platypus came from? <laughs> Have you seen a platypus? They're the weirdest things. Leftover pieces they put together, you know. <laughs> so, so I think God has a great sense of humor. And um, Tim's family, uh, Kim is the one who got me to uh, write this story for the kids. And uh, and Kim's family is Minnesota, North Dakota, salt of the earth people, you know large family. Her dad is named Willard. He lived with us for 17 years before he passed away in 2002. And Willard is, his, we call him Willie. Kim's dad is the Willie in the book. And um, so Kim's dad, uh, family is very outgoing. They express everything. They, you know, they're Minnesota, North Dakota people. They, you betcha they are. And uh, <laughs> they're, you know, genetically enhanced to all talk loudly at the same time and understand each other. <laughs> And me, I'm from a little religious family where we hide everything and we lie about almost everything. And, uh, so very different worlds, and it, and it really clashed. But I think God is involved, and I think as we as as we get to be adults, we begin to change wonder for words like coincidence and chance and luck and things like that. And as God begins to heal our hearts, we begin to see Him also in, in penetrating into all the details of our lives. And I'm going to tell you stories about why I think that, how, just stories that reveal that sort of thing that have been part of the book or around, around the book. I grew up in the highlands of New Guinea. Oh, I'll show you some pictures. Um, there's one. Can you see the resemblance? Well, see, thanks. This is actually a very sad picture. If you look at the eyes. The eyes, I'm about five, four and a half, five, and the eyes are already dead. I had some great sadness as a child. One, of, one was a very uh, angry father who communicated to me very early that I didn't belong to him. He was, he was too busy doing God's work, and then when he was around me, he beat the crap out of me. So um, that's not only. By this time, sexual abuse inside the tribe is already going on pretty strong. And my parents were of a generation that thought if they just did the work of God, that God would take care of the kids and the details. And uh, so uh, the next picture, this is my world. This is, uh, this is actually, I'm about eight. And by this time, I can cover up the pain. But see, when I went to boarding school, the first night at Christian Missionary Boarding School, when I was six, seven, eight, the big boys came and molested us. And, uh, and uh, it was a dangerous place anyway. And that's happening by this time. Um, these people that I grew up in were my family. I love the Donnie people. I would have circled them before I would have circled my, my parents as my family. They, uh, they taught me how to do everything, and they took care of me. And it was inside their culture that the abuse took place. My parents didn't have a clue. They were Stone Age, tribal, never seen white people before, cannibals. I'm the white person, by the way. And um, <laughs> in case you were wondering, <laughs> the next picture, I call this one Appetizer. I actually am leading them. They're not chasing me, okay? And uh, it's, a, it's a warrior pack, and I'm, I'm leading them. But that's the world I grew up in. Everybody grows up, you know, around cannibals. And uh... <laughs> So, um, you know, 
my life has been a little odd in some respects, but, but that kind of history is why the book is a little bit outside the box, you know? And I'm writing it for my kids and I'm saying, after 50 years, this is finally who I believe God, who God is. He's not Gandalf with an attitude, you know? He's not Zeus and he's not Santa Claus who has a list, who's checking it twice, who's gonna find out who's naughty and nice and then come to town and judge us. Now, whole songs about the God I grew up in. They call him Santa Claus. So all of these kinds of things are wrapped uh, in my history and the great sadnesses and all of that. And the book, McKenzie, well, the, the best way a person put it, as a writer out of Nashville, and she wrote me early when the book first came out, and she said, I don't know your history, but my sense is that Missy represents something murdered in you as a child, probably your innocence. And Mackenzie is you as an adult trying to deal with it. And she showed it to Kim and she said, boy, she nailed it. And she did. So that's kind of the big framing, the metaphor. The story stands by itself, but it is deeply metaphorical. Now, let me, let me think about what stories, because there's so many stories that have wound themselves, not just in my history, but in, into something like this, into the book itself. And now that I have over 50,000 emails from all over the world, from people who are just telling me how this book has opened up their lives. And I'm, I'm around all these stories all the time now. And people ask me what I do, and I say I hang around burning bushes. You know? <laughs> and it's a beautiful thing, and I'm so honored to be a part of that. My, uh, my, I want to take you through part of the journey. See, Mackenzie spends 11... 11 uh, excuse me, Mackenzie spends a weekend in the shack. That represents 11 years of my life. From January 4, 19, 1994 to the end of 2004 was where I went into all my crap and began to deal with it. And it took 11 years. And then I was finally ready to write this little story that Kim was asking me to write for the kids. Got it done by Christmas, didn't have the money, but after Christmas we made the 15 copies. And the book did everything that I wanted it to do. It just got out of hand because my friends kept giving it away. <laughs> And it's really out of hand now. <laughs> you know, my favorite quote about the book, and I love, I tell this every time because I just love this quote. It's from Tyson, who graduated from Oregon State last year. Tyson, he knows us. He knows the family. He hangs around. We love on him, and he loves on us. He reads the book, and he says to my daughter, Amy, who's 21, he says, Amy, this book is so far beyond your dad. <laughs> great. I mean, he's absolutely right. There are so many things that have happened that there is no way I could have anticipated or, I mean, I'm not like a real author anyway, so, you know, I'm just a guy who was working up, up till a year ago, February, I was still shipping soldering tips out of a little manufacturer's rep warehouse and cleaning the toilets. So, you know, don't be too impressed. And uh, it's one of these things where I've gotten to be a part, my family's gotten to be a part of something that is absolutely comical. And I mean, I'm speaking on a Thursday night, to, just to tell you how unbelievably wild this is. I'm speaking on a Thursday night in a women's prison. On Saturday, I'm doing the devotional for the Jonas Brothers before they do a concert in, in Utah. I ship out soldering tips and clean toilets. It's a little 
By the way, Jonas Brothers, they're the real deal. They're the real deal. They really take their relationship with Jesus seriously. They, their purity rings are absolutely parts of how they look at themselves. Their parents both are, tr are truly in relationship with Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And so are the boys. So it's just a cool deal. Um, one of the things that I didn't anticipate, and um, you know the section on forgiveness in the book, which forgiveness becomes such a crucial element of our own healing and what God does in our hearts. And uh, forgiveness is really at a centerpiece. I wrote the section from Mackenzie's point of view, which is my point of view. I wrote the section, and part of my struggle is that in my 11 years, I had to deal with forgiving my, my dad, my mom, uh, forgiving the abusers, um, uh, both in the tribal context and in the, in the boarding school. Um, and then, you know, forgiving myself, which was way the hardest. But part of the struggle when you're in the process where somebody has perpetrated an evil on you is that God would have any consideration for that perpetrator. You know, if you're going to be on my side, at least be on my side, right? So that's part of the issue of forgiveness. Well, here's what I didn't anticipate. The book is ripping through prisons. And the perpetrators are reading the same section from their point of view, not the victim's point of view. And they're hearing God, in a sense, arguing with the victim on their behalf as if they still have any value. And I tell you, like in St. Cloud Maximum Security Federal Penitentiary in Minnesota, they've told me now the book is the most requested book in the history of that penitentiary. So it's doing this. I'm up in Edmonton, Alberta, few months ago and I speak and half the population shows up voluntarily because there are 40 copies of the shack now going through that prison. After I'm done this gal comes collapses in my arms and she's weeping and she's crying so hard I can feel her tears running down my face and between her sobs she says to me do you really think Papa's fond of me? And I'm able to say honey he's especially fond of you. And she, between her sobs, that's all I needed to know. That's all I needed to know. It's all any of us needs to know. Great. I'm going to tell you a couple, uh, uh, th three irony stories. Four, maybe. Maybe, maybe five. But <laughs> you'll love this. I, uh, I went to Bible school for three years up in Canada. And uh, I was really in the midst of trying to learn to ask really the hard questions. And you find out that if you're in a religious community, you find out that there are a lot of questions you're not supposed to ask. And uh, if you do ask them, they tell you Bible verses, like rebellion is worse than witchcraft, you know, that kind of thing. And so you learn after a while to shut up, except if you're a missionary kid, <laughs> because you don't understand the boundaries that are in this culture. And uh, so three years, and, uh, and then my third year, I was... Uh, see, what I did with the shack is I just created a facade on the outside, you know, something that I hope people would believe was me and I could paint as fast as I could pick up their expectations. You understand that? So I'm a performer. And I perform really well, but I just didn't believe it had any validity. Even when I graduated from college, Phi Beta Kappa Summa Cum Laude, I walked out thinking I fooled them. I did. Because if the shack is destroyed, you don't believe there's anything of value on the inside. So you have to try to create it out here. And that's where you, you're trying to please God, too, as well as people. So three years, and my third year, I'm junior class president. I'm the top student in the school. I'm paying my own way through school, but I need the scholarships. I'm, I'm working as a rock and roll disc jockey, six to midnight, and 
paying my way through Bible school, which is kind of an oxymoron if you think about it. But, <laughs> but, so um, um, when the scholarships show up after my third year, my name is not on any of them. And my friends go to the administration and they say, how come Paul is not on any of the scholarships? And they say, well, we've determined he's not a good investment for the denomination. Which they were true. I mean, they were right. <laughs> so I never graduated there. Now here's the irony. Last fall, that school moved from Regina to Calgary, Alberta and opened up as Ambrose University. I was their first speaker. <laughs> you gotta love it, right? And I told this story. It was great. I had kids coming up to me. They had nose rings and gauges, and they're going, things have changed a little around here. <laughs> here's, a, here's another irony. So I finished my undergraduate education at Warner Pacific College, which is a Church of God school in Portland, uh, Oregon. Now, Warner, um, I only was there one year because I, I was actually ending to go, uh, intending to go to California and finishing up uh, my degrees down there. But I went there because I am a Canadian and I had a student visa and I needed to go somewhere in order to validate the visa because I didn't want to go to LA. Well, I had a good year, but um, I, I didn't realize. See, missionary kids and third culture kids, they tend to be outside the box and they, they're looking to try to belong, but they don't know how to do it. And um, um, so I was excited about some of the transitions that were happening in my life and had started driving kids to this church in Gresham, Oregon, which was not a Church of God school. And so I was, they even gave me a van. I ended up working at that church after I graduated. But here's what happened during graduation. I was there only one year, and I'm surrounded by Church of God kids. And um, I'm thinking, it's our graduation. We need to do something. Because it looked like the administration wasn't going to do anything fun. And so... I figured since I'm William Paul Young, I'm like at the end of the alphabet, right? So if I do something, it won't, it won't bother anybody because there's nobody after me, right? And I'm graduating Phi Beta Kappa, summa cum laude, first in my class. And I'm thinking, well, this will be funny. So I talked talk to some of the kids in the dorm and they gave me, Steve Dow gave me his, now he's six foot six. He gave me his, his jeans went up to here and I had cutoffs on underneath and I waded down the back pockets with jars of pennies and tied a rope down my hand so that at the appropriate mo moment I could just drop my pants right pretty juvenile but you know <laughs> well as we talked about it we got I got kind of a little antsy about it everybody thought it would be funny but it looked like graduation was going to be really serious and uh, and I said look I said look it depends on the speaker Right? Because this is our graduation. If the speaker is good, I won't, I'll just tie it off and go through the ceremony and all that. <laughs> the speaker was awful. <laughs> well, what I didn't know was the speaker was worth $2 million to the school for an endowment, right? So they had invited him. And you know what, he, you know what his topic was for my graduation? You wouldn't believe this. The impact of Oregon's Clean Air Act on tourism. I kid you not. And he's monotone. He's like 147 years old, and and the, the faculty is sitting behind him on the platform. So, so you know, here's 
here's the dean of students and he's going to announce your name and you're going to walk here you're going to go back to the corner over there where the president is waiting for you to give you to shake your hand and the dean of men will give you your diploma and the faculty is sitting up here he was really bad <laughs> So I'm thinking, there's no way I'm not doing this, you know? Because the, the impact of Oregon's Clean Air Act on tourism, give me a break. Well, right before we went in to graduate, I got a phone call, and it was from Donna. And Donna was perpetually suicidal. And I said, Donna, I'm sorry, you're going to have to wait to kill yourself. i got to graduate, you know? But I'll come see you as soon as I'm done. So just don't kill yourself until I get there, right? So I had a car waiting for me anyway, which I didn't realize was going to be very crucial. <laughs> so Marshall Christensen stands there and announces, William Paul Young, Phi Beta Kappa, Summa Cum Laude, first in the class, you know, and I'm the last, so big deal. As I'm passing him, I let go of the string, the rope. Worked perfectly. It was just like, perfect. Down they go. But I, I've done a lot of drama, you know, so I was kind of like acting it was an accident, right? So I'm going, oh. The first rows are kind of going, people in the back don't realize what's going on yet, right? Because they've been sleeping. The guys, you know? So, so um, I'm kind of struggling with it because it, it really dropped quite well. And uh, I got my gown and I'm trying to struggle and, and I'm kind of struggling and now, now they get an idea that there's a problem here, but they still think it's an accident. And I'm making my way over and I'm about three quarters of the way over to the president and I look up and he's got this. It's just like that. Well, it's, it's like this. And I get there and I'm struggling because this hat thing doesn't stay on either. You know, so it, I'm struggling. You know? And I get there and through gritted teeth he says, is this an accident or did you do this on purpose? <laughs> And I said, I did this on purpose. <laughs> oh, right before that. Now, here's God. See, the Holy Spirit was totally in this thing. So, when I got there, when I first got over to him like this, you know, I let go of my hat and I look down to try to grab and my hat flips off and he catches it. And so I go, oh, thanks. Let go of my pants. Pants goes down. He goes like this. I go, oh, my hat flips off. He catches it again. It's like unbelievable, right? And then he says, did you do this on purpose? There was this an accident. And I said, I did this on purpose. Dean of students pulling my diploma away. And the president says, you sit down. We'll take care of you later. Well, I had a car waiting. Donna Eichmann's going to kill herself. So I am out the door. But... That night I had gratis work. You know, you pay your way through college sometimes by doing chores and stuff on campus. And I did the old switchboard where you plug in the things, you know? So I'm down at the switchboard and the faculty is coming by saying, Paul, that was the only appropriate response to the speaker. <laughs> One of the professors says, if it had been me, I'd have just dropped my pen. I'd have, I'd have run out of there stark naked. <laughs> What I didn't know and was soon to find out was that there was a huge division in the school between faculty and administration. So I knew pretty quick that the administration was really angry and I'm trying to figure out. I still got two weeks on campus because there's things you have to finish up, you know. 
how am I going? What am I going to do? You know. So I decided to go up and talk to them. Well, they were waiting for me, and they they put me through three hours of growing. They they were they told me that they were going to file obscenity charges against me. They were going to do all this stuff, and they said, and we bent over backwards for your spirituality all year. And I'm thinking, what do you mean? Oh, that's why every time I started a Bible study, they would close that building. <laughs> oh, okay. So I'm, I mean, I'm in tears, and this, this was a very intense thing. And uh, at the end of it, I'm saying, because they wanted me, here's what they wanted. They wanted me to say, I did this as an attack against the administration for political reasons. And I'm going... I did this because I thought it would be funny. And I'm serious. But they thought it was political. They wanted me to go before the student body and say, I need to ask for your forgiveness. I made a political attack against the administration that wasn't warranted. You know, that's what they wanted. And I'm going, I can't do that. At the end, I'm going, I can't believe that people will hold their identity so tightly to an institution they can't laugh about anything. Well, that really pleased them. So, so I mean, I, I'm still on campus and stuff. And um, a couple days later... They get an extortion against the school. Somebody pl- says that they planted a bomb in the chapel. FBI's running around. And they got a list of suspects. I'm on it. One of the professors is on it. Now, they find out who it was. It was an ex-student who was in a real crisis, and he was just desperate to try to get help for his wife. And so he had fake bomb scare. And... Uh, so then, a couple days later, I get a phone call. And I'm still on campus. And the phone call is, we are about to release an article, and we would like to talk to a student from Warner Pacific College because we're going to expose the corruption in the administration. I said, look, I, I really don't have anything to do with it. All I can tell you is I think that if, you know, if they don't reinstate their spiritual calling at the grassroots up, that this place is just going to crash. I'm the only student quoted in an eight-page expose, and I'm the last two paragraphs. I'm the punchline of the article. Well, you know how happy everybody on campus was. <laughs> and, and what started to happen, as soon as, soon as the, my friends, who were Church of God kids in that denomination, saw the response of the administration, they pulled away from me. Literally. I came in and sat down in chapel and three rows vacated around me. And then the most amazing thing happened. From every corner of that building came the druggies, the lowlifes, the losers, and they came and sat with me. It was unbelievable. And uh, so all this happens. The administration ends up getting totally reformed. I mean, that whole leadership had to leave. There was just all kinds of stuff that that had to be fixed. And And it was. That's Warner Pacific College. This December, they're giving me a doctorate. (laughs) An honorary doctorate. Do these people know who I am exactly? You know, now the school has really changed, and I'm really I'm good friends with both the last two presidents, so it's you know it's it's a good thing. But still, the first invitation I ever get when I was in New Guinea, I went to boarding school in Sentani, which is at the coast of, of New Guinea, and it was a very dangerous place. If I had graduated through eighth grade, I would have then gone to Dalat, Dalat International School in Penang, Malaysia. So I write this book starts to go out in, into the world. 
early on and the first international invitation that I get and these people don't know anything about me except I wrote the book the first international invitation was from Dalat International School so I went when they found out that I was a missionary kid they almost cut the whole thing off because they never had an MK back years ago they would had some significant problems in that school and so for me to come onto campus was like an unbelievable possibility of reconciliation. Had an incredible 10 days there. So, all these little ironies, the weavings of God through history. And I'm going to tell you some, some more of these kinds of... You okay? Okay. Tell you some more of these kinds because there's, there's meaning in this. I have a friend named Dan Polk. P-O-L-K. Now, Dan... I have a whole bunch. I actually have a few friends. And... Uh, <laughs> I have a group of friends and if we had a motto it would be if you like someone you give them your time and your money but if you love them you give them your friends. Okay? So Scott Klausner gave me Dan Polk in 2002. And uh, um, Dan is younger. He's got two little little girls. He's uh, um, he didn't have any girls when we first met but he's got two little girls now. He's uh, a, a great guy. I work with him. He um he lives in Annapolis, Maryland. Now, he worked for investment banking. You know, on the side, he had a little construction thing where he'd use it to help guys who were out of work learn to trade and get back on their feet, stuff like that. And he'd taken a job for his parents building a house. He said, if you ever want to quit construction, take a job for your parents. Right? Well, I think we should move that wall like 18 inches over that way. You know? And if you've been... My wife, she's always you know, changing everything. And uh, so it's... It was like that. And he had, he had lost his Finnish contractor. There was a guy who would do the Finnish work. And Dan can do it, but he didn't have the time to do it. So he lost his Finnish contractor. And somebody had said to him, look, now this is last summer. Somebody said, look, um, there's this kid in Annapolis who's a really great Finnish contractor. Why don't you get a hold of him? Now, in the meantime, I'm planning a trip to North Carolina. Dan and another friend named Trip Sizemore, a guy who had run for governor, who's a friend of ours, in North Carolina, wanted, he wanted me to come and go seven cities in 10 days in North Carolina, just talking about the shock and stuff like this. So that was in the works. And so Danny, I, I got to call Dan, and I called Dan, and this kid that he's just contacted, who's a Finnish contractor, is at this his parents' house doing measurements while I am on the phone with Dan Polk. You get the scene? Or did I totally lose you? Okay. <laughs> I call. I talk to Dan for 10 minutes, and when he hangs up, this kid says, was that William P. Young you were talking to on the phone, like the guy who wrote The Shack? And Dan says, yeah, why? He said, well, my father-in-law went to boarding school with him in New Guinea. Oh now think about this. Portland, Oregon, Annapolis, Maryland, don't have a finished contractor, finds this kid. Danny says, are you serious? You want to talk to him? Sure. So I get a phone call right back. And Danny explains, there's this guy that I just hired to do finish work and he's doing measurements in my house. And he says, his, you went to school, boarding school with his father-in-law. Really? What's his father-in-law's name? Well, what's your father-in-law's name? It's Joe Smith. Oh, I said, Joe Smith? He says, yeah, Joe Smith. I said, the Joe Smith that went to boarding school in Santani? He says, is your dad, your father-in-law, Joe Smith, went to school in Santani? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Here, talk to him. 
So I'm now talking to Joe Smith's son-in-law, and I talked to him for like 15 minutes. Great kid, great, it's just wonderful. I, the guy, the kid gives the phone back to Danny, and Danny, and Danny's going to say goodbye. And I say, Danny, Joe Smith was my primary sexual abuser in boarding school. This is last summer. I said, don't say anything. I forgave him a long time ago. But I'm thinking, okay, you know, I'm kind of slow on the uptake on a bunch of stuff, like, but this is like way out there. But I'm just waiting. Well, what happens is that Joe Smith was in the U.S. last summer, and he was building up support to go back to Erie. And I hadn't seen him for 30... I saw him 33 years ago. And I, when I saw him... I had just frozen. I locked up into all my crap. And the last time I heard about him, oh, here's another weird thing about my life. In, in 2000, I was on a national televised game show. Here's what happened. My daughter Amy, on a Thursday night, dialed an 800 number, handed me the phone and say, answer these questions. Thursday night and by Sunday I'm in New York on Who Wants to Be a Millionaire <laughs> and guess what I happened to be on the show they taped the last show before they went on a 30 day break and I actually answered the very last question and got on the hot seat and answered two questions before they took a 30 day holiday and I had to fly back to Oregon, wait 30 days, fly back to New York to finish the show. Weird. But Regis loved me. I'm from, I'm from Boring, Oregon. That's the name of the town I was living in. Boring, Oregon. I have six children and I was raised among cannibals. It made for great television. In fact... The show that I was on, the, the, big, the most part, I was on for 40 minutes of the hour show. He just, he just loved me. And we were in a real crisis at that time financially. And so suddenly, Kim's going, just get to 36,000. <laughs> just get and quit. <laughs> so, uh, you want to hear about this? Okay. Uh, because this, had, I'll get back to the other story. Because this is how I had. This is what I had heard about Joe Smith. It was connected to this being on Who Wants to Be a Millionaire. I never talk about this, by the way. So you're. This is funny. So, well, see the first time, and and I had to go through a whole bunch of hoops to get there. But here's here's what it takes. I answered those first three questions, and I got put in a pool of about six thousand people who answered the three questions right. They drew. Five, six hundred names out of that. And all of those people got to phone in um, and pin number into to five questions and had to answer five questions each in ten seconds. And then whoever survived that round went into a pool and they picked ten people who then went to New York. I went through all of that and was in New York on Sunday from Thursday. Okay? Not a lot of time to prep, you know? So... I get there, they're taping shows because they want to take a break. This is the first time the show has ever taken a break. And, uh, and you know, everybody's tired. So they want to shoot shows and can them and then use them until 
uh, they got back from the 30 days and they could start taping. In fact, when I, when I was on the first show, they, they aired it the next night because they'd used up all their canned shows. And you know, you get there and, they, and they're shooting two shows the, my day and I'm in the second group. So Chad and I, I took my oldest son and what was cool was the second time I could take Kim uh, because they didn't show Chad at all. And, uh, you know, because it, make, it makes it look like you're the next night, you know, you're there. And it's been, I was thinking, maybe I should, you know, eat a lot or something. You know? <laughs> just, just for fun, you know? So, uh, so but you get there and, and uh, they lost my luggage during the night. And at three in the morning, we had to go show them, because it showed up at two in the morning. We had to go and show them the clothes we were wearing so they knew it was okay. And our room lost its, while well, the heater broke and it was like 96 degrees in our room and by the next morning we were just wiped out they picked us up at six in the morning which in Oregon time is three in the morning and now we're going and we're watching the first show and watch them tape it so we're learning how to do everything and they're telling us don't listen to Regis he often thinks he's right he is the worst player we have ever seen he doesn't know the answers don't listen to him right and uh, so we we go through it, we watch the first group, then we get to practice. And they're easy things like, put these parts of the body in order from head to foot, you know? But the board design's kind of weird. A, B, C, D, and a reverse button, in case you can knock yourself out, and then a set button that you have to push that says, that's my answer. And you gotta do that, and the questions are coming like this, and this is, I got, I got them all wrong. And I'm going to chat. You know, he's saying, Dad, you'll do better when the questions are harder. I love my boy. So, at the very end of our show, and I've been close. I was second on the first question, and the second question. Well, and the, well, they have a holdover, right, from the previous show, and they took quite a bit of time with that person, and they got to like sixty-four thousand. Then the next gal, who we thought was going to clean our clocks, she did. She got on. She got to one hundred twenty-five thousand, and then lost it all back to thirty thirty-two thousand, and. Um, and uh, because she followed Regis. She, she was like 19, but brilliant. And Regis took her down this path and she bit. And he was wrong. <laughs> and, uh, and then they had a country western question, which I just guessed and was totally wrong. And because uh, it's not one of my big things. So um, I'm, I like history and cosmology and science and stuff like that. That's where fractals come from and things like that. So um, I get on the, on the last, well, the last. They're running out of time. So the question on the, on the floor is, do we want to hold over for the next show? Five minutes, they're arguing about it. And finally they say, yeah, we'll take one more holdover. So we had one more question. And I'm a Canadian, and they asked me the order that after, the, if the president is killed and the vice president, after, after the vice president put the next four in order. And I beat everybody by two and a half seconds. I mean, it was just like unbelievable. And so... Well, here's, here's something you don't know when you watch the show. I went, yeah, I'm so tired. Are you kidding? This is late in the day and I've been up and, uh, you know. I went, yes! And I get over there and I sit in the hot seat and the producer goes, uh, we missed that shot. Could you do that again? <laughs> so I have to go over and do the whole yes thing again and, and it's all fake, right? So I get on there and then you're sitting there waiting for them because they every time somebody gets on the hot seat, they make sure that everybody's boards worked, everything was fine, so, you know, all legal issues. So I'm on there. He asked me two questions, the horn rings, I'm out of there for 30 days. 
Well, I'm getting ready to go back to New York. This time I'm taking Kim, and we're taking one of Kim's sister and a friend. And uh, the day before I go back, I'm, we're riding in the car. We went over for one of Kim's sister's birthdays in Vancouver, Washington. And uh, on the way back, I'm talking to Chad, and Kim's in the car. And we're talking about how cool this solar system is and how thankful we should be for Jupiter. Right? Common conversation. <laughs> Because Jupiter is this massive, dense, spinning ball. It's huge compared to the Earth, and it's spinning at an unbelievable rate of speed. But what it does, it creates an incredible gravitational field. And that gravitational field acts like a big, sucking vacuum cleaner in our solar system, and it sucks asteroids away from the Earth. The Earth would not exist if Jupiter wasn't in its place. And we were talking about this big, huge asteroid belt between Mars and Jupiter, and how cool that is, right? The next day, I fly to New York with Kim and her sister and her best friend, one of her friends. And um, we get there, and I'm gonna be first on the show because I'm the holdover, right? I'm first on the show, we get the whole day, and the next day, we're gonna go back to Portland, and that night, they're gonna show the show. Great. So, I'm on, and... Uh, and I use all my lifelines by the time I get to 32. I'm not a pop, pop culture guy. I'm just not. And I'm hoping, okay, we need some you know, science and stuff. Chad, my oldest son, was my lifeline on, uh, on the $16,000 question. So he knew that I made 16 because it was a question and I knew he was sitting in, in uh, Vancouver, Washington with four high-speed internet connections up. <laughs> You're allowed to do anything you want. <clears throat> You know, but you only have 30 seconds. So I switched the question around and he answered it really well. He, he was nervous. And so he answered it like a question. Bruce Springsteen? You know, like that. And I'm, at that point I'm thinking, Chad, I, I need an answer, not a question. And, uh, but I think, oh, but, but I'm on national television with my son, right? How cool is this? You know? And, uh, and he said, and this is for 16,000. If you lose that, you go back to 1,000, right? So... I, I had like 10 seconds left. And I said, I did what I just do naturally, this part of our family. I said, Chatty, I love you with all my heart. Right? Well, Regis says, well, how much are you going to love him if he's wrong? <laughs> and let me tell you, the Holy Spirit came down on that set. And I turned to him and I said, he will always be my son. And I tell you, that little thing that I did right then went through this culture like a rocket. Unbelievable. That little thing that was so natural. And my response to Regis, there's, a, there's kind of a guy who's a, a hardcore radio personality in, in Minneapolis. And the next morning, he was on air after the show aired. He was on and he said, I think for the first time in my life I saw a human being on Who Wants to Be a Millionaire. He said, I sat with my son and I said to my son, you see the way this man loves his son? That's the way it's supposed to be. It had this incredible impact that I had no clue about. So um, he helped me with 16000 and and we got it right and then uh, we went on. And there was a lot of other little pieces about it. But um, So I get to the $250,000 question. Right? Because I'm out of lifelines and I'm at, I'm at Kim's freaking out. And it's like, quit, quit, quit. Every time we go up, it's just like, quit, you know? So I'm thinking, okay, I've got the 32,000. Okay, we got that covered. But they keep asking me science questions and history questions, and I'm going, 
Okay, so I get to the 250,000 by this time, there is real intensity on the set. You stop between every question. That's amazing. And I'm sitting there, and he comes. Regis says, for $250,000, between which two planets is there an asteroid belt? <laughs> he didn't even get to him. I said, B, final answer. He went, what? I said, B, final answer. Don't you want to think about this? No, B, final answer. Bam. And he says, how in the world? And I tell him about Jupiter and how God has created the solar system. And it's just like unbelievable. <laughs> the next question was, of these four childhood actresses in pop culture, who in 1998 co-authored a physics paper on magnetism? I said, I'm out of here. <laughs> so I walked out with $250,000. Okay? Because of that show, a girl that I grew up with on the mission field found me. She'd been looking for me for 20 years. And she sees me. And we make the connection. Well, I, we talk about the abuse that happened in boarding school. And six months later, she confronts Joe Smith. And Joe Smith's response, this is the year 2000, he responded by saying, boys will be boys. So that's the last I'd heard from Joe Smith about where he was at with all this. And now, well see, Joe Smith was in the U.S. and he spent the night at his son-in-law's. And his son-in-law said, you won't believe who I talked to on the phone. Paul Young. And within two days, I have two emails from Joe Smith saying we need to talk. Now by that point I'm in Orlando and I'm doing this big um, book event and uh, on my way into this breakfast where I'm going to speak to 300 people Q&A I call him and, and I say you want to talk? And he says, I can't right now. I'm in Atlanta traffic. I think I'm going to die. My wife and I are driving to New Orleans and we're halfway through the shack. I want to finish it before we talk. Can you call me tonight? And I said, yeah, I'll call you tonight. And from that phone call, and I'm shaking a bit, I walk into Q&A and somebody asked me, you said that there's, there was sexual abuse in boarding school, has anything ever been resolved with regard to that? And I fall apart. And now I'm crying and I'm telling them about Dan Polk and this conversation and they're crying and, and it, was, it was amazing. They're praying for me. So I walk out of that and that night I call them and the first thing I say is, I don't know if this means anything to you. I don't know even if this is important to you, if it matters to you, but it's important to me that I know that you know that I forgave you a long time ago. And he says, it's important to me too. And we begin to talk for 45 minutes. We talk about what an awful time that whole period of time was and about how unprotected we were. And by the end of the conversation, he says, I need, this, I need to see you. Can, can, 
can I see you? He said, I'm leaving to go back overseas in September, this last September. Can I see you? I said, man, my schedule's nuts. But it worked out that when I landed in Charlotte, North Carolina to do these seven cities that night, Joe drove down from uh, uh, Atlanta and we sat at supper together and walked the rest of the way through total reconciliation. And he says to me, I just needed to see your face. I just needed to know that we are okay. And I'm looking at him. And for the first time, he looks small. Unbelievable. Two people in my life always looked huge that in the last two years have looked small. Joe Smith, my father. Unbelievable. So, God in the middle of details. I'll tell you one more story. My mother, my mother, when she um, read the book, well, she didn't read the whole book. <laughs> At first, she only read part of the book. She got up to where Papa came through the door. <laughs> Closed the book. <laughs> called my sister, Debbie, and said, your brother's a heretic. <laughs> and she got stuck right there. Now, I don't know if you've known this, but other people have kind of got stuck with that, too. So let me tell you the story of how my mom got past that. I'll tell you that story and another related story, and then, and then we'll be done. The book, is, um, the book is doing unbelievable things all over the world. I want to tell you a couple little pieces before I go into this story. I get an email. Um, this guy says... Uh, I've never written to an author before, never felt the need because of your book, The Shack. My son, from whom I've been estranged for over 40 plus years, went on a spiritual quest that took him from Atlanta, Georgia to Oak Grove, Oregon for a few hour visit. He had sent me a surprising email that simply said, I'll be there in a few days bearing a great gift, which turned out to be a much read dog-eared copy of The Shack. In the front cover, he addressed various things to Father, the one that means the most to me, is there is healing in the giving and receiving of forgiveness. So we did that and much, much more. Forty years estranged. I'm talking to this gal in Jackson, Mississippi a few months ago. She's a military nurse. She flies in the helicopters in Afghanistan that are being shot at. Part of her toughness is the fact that she was regularly sexually molested by her father and her uncle. She reads the shack and knows that forgiveness is something that she has to deal with or else she's going to be stuck in this prison that she is of, of her own pain and, and, and she's just lost in her secrets. Well, it turns out her father gets cancer and she as the nurse in the family ends up with the responsibility of taking care of him the last six weeks before he dies. But before she can have the conversation with him that she wants, he goes into a coma and he goes deeper and deeper and deeper into the coma and she knows he's going to die and he actually eventually dies without coming out at one point she decides we've got to have this conversation so she takes her chair to the side of his bed and takes his hand and says daddy I am here to ask for both of our forgiveness and she begins to recount to him all that has happened and all the damage of those choices and as she does so tears begin rolling down his cheeks A man who stands up at a Q&A, tears running down his face, and he says, I, 
I don't have a question. I just got off the phone with my mom, who's been an avowed atheist her whole life. And she just called me and said, Son, I just finished reading the shack. I now believe there is a God and that Jesus is the Son of God. You get one of those. And who cares about the controversy? You know, the controversy is a good thing. People are stuck in their religious paradigms. And this is not about religion. Religion is religion. It's about pleasing God by performance that is driven by guilt. This is about a relationship with a God who respects his creation so much that he will not violate our ability to choose to not be in a relationship. And he does not step in to stop what we do to each other. But he shows up to bring healing and reconciliation. And good things are grown out of things that are dead. So my mother, in 1947, went into nurses training in Victoria Jubilee Hospital in Victoria, British Columbia. Three-year program. She'd been there for three months and she got capped. Which means you look cooler, but you don't know anything still. <laughs> this is 1947. You know, to us, uh, a lot of procedures and things would appear pretty medieval. There's no neonatal, no nothing like that. This is, uh, this is when, you know, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, and doctors were kind of right up there in the same place. You know, if you walked into a chart room, everybody, if a doctor walked in, everybody stood up until the doctor left. It was just, you know. My mother's 18 years old. She's German Baptist, which means don't ever rock the boat. And, uh, and so uh, she is there to do this three years of training get her nurse's RN certification. There's a family in the city named Munn, M-U-N-N. And Mr. Munn is the senior pastor at the Anglican Church, the High Church Anglican Church in Victoria. And he and his wife had been trying to have a baby. And they'd had five second trimester miscarriages in a row. And they were desperate to have a child, so they gave it one more try. And, the, and she comes in during the second trimester bleeding. Well, they call the doctor... He rushes in. He says, we're going to have to take the baby. We're going to have to operate. So he sets up an emergency operation. He, it's emergency, so he just takes whoever he can. He takes the head nurse who will assist. And then he takes in a student nurse to assist, to learn, and to do the cleanup. It's my mom. I was born in 55, so this is 47. And my mom is brought into this, and three months and now she's fully into an operation and the doctor delivers a one pound baby boy 12, uh, 16 ounces 16 ounce baby boy uh, my third grandson is Houston Parker and Houston was born emergency C-section at four pounds and I have a photograph on my laptop where Houston's entire hand is inside my son's wedding band this is one pound and this is when there is no neonatal Babies that are born premature like this during that period of time, they always die. The doctor puts this one-pound baby boy into a kidney tray, hands it to my mother, and says to dispose of it, which meant incinerator. My mother looks at the baby, and it's, he's still breathing. She doesn't know what to do. The doctor is busy finishing the operation, so my mother finds a washcloth, wraps the baby in the washcloth, puts it back in the kidney tray, and puts the kidney tray in the only warm place in the room, which is on top of the sterilization unit. The doctor finishes, assumes that my mother had done what he had told her, and he leaves. 
The head nurse stays with the woman until she gets stable and then takes the woman to post-op. My mother's left to clean up, which she does. The baby was born 8.30 p.m., May the 30th, 1947. An hour and a half or so later, the doctor goes to the parents and says, I'm sorry. We weren't able to save the baby. And they're grieving. Doctor goes home. My mother's holding this baby, waiting for it to die. 9.30, 10.30, 11.30, 12.30. At 1.30 in the morning, my mother says to herself, I should probably tell somebody about this. <laughs> so she contacts the head nurse who had been in the operation and tells her. And the head nurse goes, we are in so much trouble. Calls the doctor. He comes in outraged. He's furious. And he, he is so angry, he vows that he will make sure my mother never graduates that school. And he tried to get her kicked out, and the head nurse is the one that always saved her. He says to my mother, okay, you're responsible now. You created this mess, you've got, you got to clean it up. So my mother was given full responsibility over this little baby boy, and that she was to help in the recuperation process for Mrs. Munn. Then the doctor goes to the parents and says, you know what, I'm sorry, I spoke too soon, but... Due to the miracles of modern medicine, we were able to save your child. And we don't believe he will survive, but I just needed to tell you, if he did, he probably would have brain damage and MS and whatever. The parents name him Harold. Harold Munn. And my mother takes Harold up to the nursery where they basically adopt him. And they begin feeding him with an eyedropper. And over the next... Uh, two days, he loses four ounces. He loses one quarter of his body weight until he's down to 12 ounces. And then he begins to pick up weight. Two weeks later, Mrs. Munn went home. Two months later, Harold went home to his parents. And two years later, my mother got an invitation to Harold's second birthday party. While she goes, and she's looking around and finally spots him, little skinnier, little boy, but he looks perfectly normal. She doesn't say anything. The parents have been asking the hospital, what happened? And they're saying nothing. There's just this mystery. My mother graduates, she goes to Bible school, meets my dad, they get married. When I'm 10 months old, we go to the highlands of New Guinea. Years later, we're up in Terrace, British Columbia. And my mother is working in the hospital and she reads the obituary for a Bishop Munn who has passed away. And she's working with an Anglican nurse. So she says, did you know Bishop Munn? She says, yeah, quite well. Did he ever have any children? Yes, one son. Do you know where he is? Well, last I heard, he was a missionary teacher in West Africa and he has twins. Really, my mother doesn't say anything for another 10 years until she sees the obituary of the doctor. And now she feels like she can talk about this. It's the first time we heard about it. So she decides, now that she is free, to find him. She tracks him down, and he was now the senior pastor at the same Anglican church that his father had pastored. So she gets a hold of him, and my parents meet Harold and his wife, and my mother tells him the story. He says, we always knew. We always knew there was this mystery. They became friends. And during a conversation one day, my mother says to Harold, Harold, I have this son. And he wrote this book, and I'm having a problem with it. 
Harold says, well, Bernice, why don't you let me read it? You know, I'll read it and I'll tell you what I think. Well, would you do that? <laughs> sure. So Harold reads the shack, sends me an email. Paul, I love everything about your book, but I think your mother is struggling with the imagery you use for Papa. Let me see if I can do something about that. So Harold blind copies me on an email to my mother. Dear Bernice, I love Paul's book, but I think I know what you're probably struggling with is the imagery you use for Papa. Here's why that imagery is so important to me. And in the next couple paragraphs, he lays it out. God is not male or female. He's not even 51% male and 49% female. God is spirit. All maleness, all femaleness are both derived from the very nature and character of God. God is spirit. Imagery doesn't define God. Imagery is to help us understand the nature and character of God. That's why there is male imagery and female imagery. That is why there is animal imagery. God is pictured as a mother hen. God is pictured as an eagle. If I'd have used a hen coming through the door of the shack, it, wouldn't, it just wouldn't have worked. It fits the story because Mackenzie is lost inside his own hatred for his own father. And he's stuck there. And the fatherhood of God is a difficult thing for some of us who have been abused by men in our lives. He lays it out. And here this little baby that my mother saves in 1947 builds a bridge that she can walk across for her own son. Incredible. Four questions that God asks, the last of which is the most important to me. First question in Genesis is, where are you? God knew where Adam and Eve were. Where are you? That's an invitation to relationship. That's what he asks us. Tell me where you are. What you're hiding in. What's the shame? Come out of your secrets. Where are you? The second question is with my hero, Jacob. He's my hero because I'm so like him. Jacob, the twister, the deceiver, the liar, you know. And Jacob ends up being afraid of his brother. Remember his brother Esau was the big he-man guy and Jacob was kind of the cook. And uh, Jacob is now going to face his brother and he hears that his brother is coming with 400 armed men. So he begins to scramble like many of us do when we get into situations in which we fear and we need control. He begins to send everything as gifts to his brother, hoping that by the time he gets to Jacob, he will have calmed down long enough not to kill him. It's interesting that the first group he sends are the women and children. <laughs> he ends up alone, and he ends up in a wrestling match with God, and God finally says, Jacob, how long have we been doing this? How old are you exactly? We've been doing this a long time, and I'm just done. And Jacob, fearing that he's, he is totally going to lose control of everything, grabs God and says, I'm not going to let go. I want the blessing of the Father. And God immediately says, then what's your name? The second question, what's your name? And suddenly when I'm reading that during my 11 years of healing, I realize I've heard that before. It was way back then when when Jacob wanted the blessing of his father and he came in to get it and his father says, what's your name? Jacob said, Esau. 
And all these years later, he is wrestling with God. And he says, I still want the blessing of the Father. What's your name? And finally he said, it's Jacob. That's all I am. I'm a liar and a deceiver and a twister. It's just Jacob. He finally was honest about himself. What's your name? So God blessed him by putting out his hip. (laughs) But it was a gift. Because every time that somebody would look at him and say, you are really something. He says, are you kidding? Are you See this? I, I walk with a limp. And I have limps in my life. I walk with a limp. And it tells me that only grace can heal the broken hearts. What's your name? The third question. People who were blind and lame would come to Jesus and Jesus would look at them and say, what do you want? But he didn't assume, because sometimes we like our sickness. Sometimes we've created an identity around our hurt and our pain. And God says, what do you really want? Do you want to be healed? Do you want to come to wholeness? What do you want? Now here's the fourth question, and this is the question we will finish with. This is a question that God asks. Why have you forsaken me? Jesus is God. And Jesus is on the cross. And we have a caricature of God that is God the Father says to Jesus, Look, I'm all dressed in white. I I just can't do this. I can't look on your sin and stuff. So I'm out of here. I'll come back in three days and pick you up. (laughs) And we think that God the Father abandons His Son. And we get that because Jesus on the cross. Let me tell you, This is the most important thing for me that Jesus ever says. There's a lot about Jesus that is hard to identify with. He lives within the sense of the presence of the Father. He functions. He says, I don't say anything unless I hear the Father say it. I have a hard time hearing. I'm just learning to hear. It's taken me a long time to be able to hear like I do. It's been a slow process. One in which I've had to learn to laugh at myself a lot. Hard to identify. There's a man who's born of the Spirit, baptized in the Spirit, filled with the Spirit. He's always known the sense of the presence of the Father. But now I can finally identify with him because on the cross, he drops into my crap. And when he cries out, I'm going, Yes! Where are you? I don't feel you. I don't sense you in my life. I'm lost. I can't see. Where are you? And he cries the cry of David in Psalm 22, who is every man crying out, Why have you forsaken me? And now Jesus, who is every part of this entire cosmos, everything is by and for and through him, cries the cry of our experience. I guarantee you, not one person in this room has always felt the sense of the presence of the Father. Our question is, where are you? And then Jesus, in the middle of our junk becoming sin for us, in the middle of our loss, fully identified with us, makes the greatest statement of faith he ever made as a human being. But into your hands I commit my spirit. If he truly thought that God the Father had abandoned and forsaken him, he would have never said that. 
And later Paul the Apostle in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 19 writes this. It's the answer to the question, where was God the Father when Jesus was hanging on the cross? And this is what it says. For God, for Papa, was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not counting their sins against them. Where was he? He was in his son. And then he turns to us and says, I'm never going to leave you or forsake you. That's the same word. I'm never going to leave you. You think I would leave my son? It's sin that creates the sense of separation. It's God who comes to us. Religion, you got to go to God. God knows we're lost. And God comes down any road to find us. He doesn't care what the road is. Alcoholism or Buddhism or atheism or religious Christianity. He doesn't care. You go down any road to find us. This is a God who's involved in the details of our lives and loves us. When I reached for the door of my shack in January 4th, 1994, if God didn't come flying out from inside my crap, I was done. It was over. But God did. Healing is a process, not an event. And God loves the process. We are the ones who judge it. God loves the process. You matter. That's the beauty of this whole thing. You matter. Your soul makes this universe dull in comparison. You matter. And Father, Son, and Holy Spirit have invited us into their life, and we get to invite them into our mess. It's quite the exchange. And he comes to live, not to visit, and to begin to heal us from the inside out within community. God is a relational being, never having done anything by himself. There's always been three. And we are created in the image of a God who is relational. We cannot do this by ourselves. We need each other. But we don't need each other as judges. We need each other as lovers. People who will pray for us so that we can be healed when we confess our hurt and our faults. Amen? Amen. Amen. Thank you. This show is part of the Generally Speaking Production Network. You can find other great shows hosted by Stephanie and Cliff at www.gspn.tv. Join the community.